Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the government running out of money on Saturday, meaning that the Departments of Transportation, Veterans Affairs, Energy, Education, Agriculture and Housing and Urban Development will shut down. Joining us to discuss today's meeting in the White House between President Biden and Vice President Harris and Senate Leaders Schumer and McConnell and House Leaders Johnson and Jeffries is Mike Lofgren. He has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees, which gave him ringside seats on top, Hurricane Katrina disaster relief, debates on the Pentagon budget and the amazing antics of various deficit reduction commissions. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party Is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and The Middle Class Got Shafted. Then we'll speak with a veteran of the U.S. Senate, Jim Manley, a Washington, D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant, Democratic strategist, and a 21-year veteran of the U.S. Senate, where he served as a senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six of those years, and before that served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. He joins us to discuss what Senate Majority Leader Schumer describes as an intense exchange about aid to Ukraine with everybody in the room piling on telling Mark Johnson to, quote, get it done. Then finally, we'll get an update on the various trials Trump is facing and whether they will happen before the election and how much time they will take up as the all but certain Republican presidential candidate campaigns to return to the White House. Joining us is Lisa Graves, the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep background briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Mike Lofgren, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees, which gave him ringside seats on TARP, Hurricane Katrina, disaster relief, debates on the Pentagon budget, and the amazing antics of various deficit reduction commissions. And he's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party Is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Lofgren. Good to be here again. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, President Biden and Vice President Harris met in the Oval Office with Mitch McConnell and uh, with the Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, along with House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and Mike Johnson, the new speaker. It's pretty hard to believe that Biden didn't say something to this guy about, <laughs> you know, why... Why are you meeting with me? I'm not even legitimate president. You know, I mean, what kind of stupid theatrics has been going on with these people? But Mike Johnson came out of the meeting saying he's very optimistic that they won't shut down the government. And he said they were working incredibly hard around the clock 
on this? Well, you're working against yourself. I mean, it's you guys who want to shut down the government. So how come you're working hard to what? Convince yourselves not to do the stupid thing that you're threatening to do? What the hell is going on here? Uh, yeah, I noticed that. He came out and was, quote-unquote, very optimistic. Uh, but it's almost unprecedented in situations like this uh, for the uh, member on the other, uh, in the other body in the Senate, who's his counterpart, which is Mitch McConnell, he didn't appear with him. So McConnell does want, apparently, the, the Ukraine aid, and uh, McConnell's been around the block long enough to know that uh, a government shutdown does not benefit Republicans. So I think legitimately he wants some sort of deal. Uh, Johnson claims he does, uh, and maybe he does. I got the sense you know, from the last two or three uh, short-term deals that, yeah, he'll make the deal, but he's constrained uh, by the the lunatic fringe in his own conference. So he basically has to go out there and make noise about how he's going to do what he may not end up doing, which is pass something that's acceptable for the other party and acceptable politically, uh, by the American people. But at best, it's going to be kicking the can down the road with another continuing resolution, right? Well, that's an interesting thing, because uh, Republicans like uh, Senator Schumer, uh, who's the majority leader in the Senate, uh, does not, and I think this applies also to uh, other Democrats, does not want to keep doing this. On the other hand, um, the Republican conference in the House does want to do that uh, because they don't want a final spending package that takes the pressure off. Uh, They want this kind of perils of Pauline thing. And even more, uh, what they want is to go past April 30th with no final bill uh, spending deal in place, because at that point it would trigger automatic across-the-board cuts in all uh, levels of government and agencies of government, and uh, officially it's a one percent cut. Well, most listeners would think, well, that's that's not that difficult. But we've already gone through half the fiscal year by that point or more. And that means you have to cut more from the remaining funds. Uh, Also, and this is real budget complexity, some uh, departments and programs the money actually spends out much slower than the pot of money you have. So in other words, uh, to cut that amount of spending, you are cutting a tremendous amount, maybe eight or nine times sometimes, the budget authority. And this would result in a real slowdown 
uh, in terms of fiscal stimulus that some of the financial analysts are saying that's what kind of kept us out of the uh, uh, recession uh, after the pandemic. So I think there's a little gamesmanship here to let's, uh, let's talk down the economy and let's do better than that. Let's make something that causes a slowdown before the election. So what's at stake is uh, on Saturday, the Department of Transportation, Housing and Urban Development, Agriculture and Energy uh, run out of money, right? That is right. They would be shut down, which is pretty peculiar when you consider that ag and vets are things vets that well, you yeah. would think Republicans have some equity in. Right. Well, uh, apparently this is... vet- veterans getting health care does not uh, mean anything to them anymore. Well, that's the isn't that the question though about Mike Johnson? Is he a part of the wrecking crew, or is he trying to do the job that he's supposed to have and act responsibly? Uh, I think uh, we can go back to the old KGB term from the Soviet Union. Maybe he's not fully on board, but he's a useful idiot. On board whose agenda? On He's not necessarily on board the Freedom Caucus's uh, complete agenda, but he's their useful idiot. He may not want a government shutdown, but given his lack of expertise in the job, and because he hasn't been a member that long, uh, lack of parliamentary skills and general fecklessness, um, you know, he's doing their bidding. Maybe that's why they put him in there, because he could be manipulated. So what do you think went on then in this meeting where, as I mentioned, you know, you had McConnell and Schumer and Jeffries and Mike Johnson along with Biden and Vice President Harris, and then apparently after they had their meeting, and apparently it got very, very tense or intense is what uh, the way that uh, Schumer described it when they talked about Ukraine. So they really obviously piled on, and he and he doesn't have a case, Mike Johnson. He's doing it because Trump's telling him to do it. Nothing he says makes any sense. I mean, no, it doesn't. He says uh, uh, in, in his statement that. Yeah, and we, we will do uh, the Ukraine thing in, in the proper sequence and, or some sort of euphemism, but he doesn't give a timetable. Right. I mean, what's the proper sequence? Uh, a town has already fallen in Ukraine in the last week. Uh, the, the well is dry in terms of U.S. aid to Ukraine unless that bill is passed. Well, presumably that's what they made, the points they made, and they did it in in a way that Schumer describes as being intense. But this guy, I don't think he can deliver, can he? If he goes back and if he uh, decides to do the right thing over Ukraine and Israel, of course, which are these, most of these right-wingers in the House support at any rate, he'll lose his job, right? Uh, that would appear to be the case. Now, it's interesting 
we've reached the point, and I had never seen this uh, during my congressional career over three decades, uh, a speaker can lose his job if he puts a bill on the floor that the other side can support. <laughs> How far we've, go, we've gone down the tubes, right? I mean, that, right. In other words, you can't possibly have majority rule in this country. I mean, what insanity is that? Exactly. But what, but what do you think happened, though, after they had their shouting match over Ukraine and then apparently Biden and Harris sat down with Johnson alone for a bit? Did, do you think they talked about something else, like maybe the threat of the discharge petition? Uh, what do you think? Uh, that I, I really can't say, but uh, that's, that's an ever-present possibility. Now, the problem is there's a kind of layover period for a discharge petition that it would be too late uh, between now and uh, Friday evening. Uh, you know, it, that's something that might work on a standalone bill for Ukraine aid. That's, that's the point. They don't intend to use a discharge petition on keeping the government going. but on the, Right. I mean, that's, that's kind of a foregone thing. They, they either got to get something now or, you know, the government shuts down, at least partially shuts down. It fully shuts down on, I believe it's March 8th. Mm -hmm. uh, if they don't get, get something that, that solves that problem, not just the, the four agencies... Right, but um, I was I was just thinking. But I, I would yeah. say a discharge petition is a is a real possibility. Whether or not uh, Biden and Harris discuss that with him, I don't know. Uh, I will say one other thing that uh, Johnson mentioned was, uh, well, of course we got to get the border uh, problem because that's that's the number one national security problem. And Biden could do X, Y, and Z by executive order. Well, you already turned down a bill that would be stronger than an executive order because it would become law. Mm -hmm. And if Biden did some of these things by executive order, uh, I tend to think you would get some one of these conservative legal groups uh, filing a suit in federal court to put an injunction on it because it was Biden's exceeding his authority, just basically to cause mischief. Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking of the, <clears throat> obviously it's not likely that Biden would in interfere with the House. It's just not done. But talk about discharge petitions. But it seems to me that it's the way to, for Johnson to get off the hook. Uh, because it's out of his hands, right? In other words, well, that, if he, if he wants be, to do but it... That but, doesn't really change the psychology of the Freedom Caucus. They would still say, how did you let this happen? Right. So in other words, nothing's going to get down on Capitol Hill as long as you've got these crazies, the, being the tail that wags the dog. As long as they're in the majority, uh, that would be the case. Right. So... Uh, Somehow we've got to survive until uh, November, or actually January of 2025? 
Uh, that is that is the case. Uh, when you have that kind of a House majority, uh, it's they can't pass any bill because that is their agenda. They don't have a positive agenda. It's just basically um, putting the government to a halt. Right. Well, that's uh, what uh, Chip Roy is saying today. That they think that uh, that they have to shut down the government in order to get these, you know, crazy demands that they have that represent a very small majority of the American people. So this is a form of terrorism, isn't that? Isn't that what John Boehner referred to these people as the legislative terrorists? Legislative terrorists. Uh, well, he's right. Well, Mike, just in closing here, I, I just don't see a way out of this. I imagine that there will be some kind of compromise on not shutting down the government, and I think even the crazies might agree with that. But I don't see any hope on the Ukraine bill. What do you think? Well, we've seen these, uh, you know, kind of fiscal and, and budgetary cliffs before, and they solved them with a short-term bill, but there gets to be a point where you can't do it anymore, uh, basically because the fiscal trigger uh, from last year would kick in and could conceivably cause uh, real damage to the economy. Uh, As for the Ukraine portion of it, uh, I tend to agree with you. Uh, everything we've seen from uh, Republicans' behavior generally on, uh, certainly House Republicans, on Ukraine aid, plus the fact that this whole business of Hunter Biden and Burisma, it was all uh, bound up with a, a Russian intelligence operation, um, and the, the business of the key witness in the Comer uh, investigation, quote-unquote, uh, basically having lied to the FBI and having Russian intelligence connections uh, just tells us how uh, implicated the entire Republican Party is in uh, all this disinformation and in hoping, apparently, that Russia defeats Ukraine, because that is what Trump wants, and he's going to get it from the Republican Party. They will deliver for him if they can. And why do you think Trump wants that? We've known for years. I believe it was Don Jr. said in 2012 or thereabouts how... Uh, maybe the majority of their cash flow in the whole Trump organization comes from Russian money. Right. So that's what Nancy Pelosi said recently, that it, the ties have to be financial or Trump has been promised something for delivering. So, right, uh, or compromise uh, or a combination of them. Right. Well, Mark Lufkin, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Sure thing.
And again, I've been speaking with Mike Lufkin, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. And he's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with a veteran of the U.S. Senate about what Senate Majority Leader described as an intense exchange about aid to Ukraine with everybody in the room piling on telling Mike Johnson to get it done. And unfortunately, the recording in this upcoming interview is our backup recording. The main recorder crashed on us, so bear with us. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are Jim Manley, a Washington, D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant, Democratic strategist, and a 21-year veteran of the United States Senate, where he served as a senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six of those years, and before that served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jim Manley. Thanks, Ian. Haven't been on the show for a while. Glad to chat. Well, I'm glad you joined us because it's been a big day in the Oval Office with President Biden and Vice President Harris sitting down with Mitch McConnell and Schumer on the Senate side and Mike Johnson and Hakeem Jeffries on the House side. And Mike Johnson has been trying to get a one-on-one with Biden, which Biden's resisted. I mean, I can imagine that Biden's a little burned by the idea that Mike Johnson doesn't think he's a legitimate president. And he went to bat for Donald Trump's big lie. But nevertheless, at least they're sitting down together. And so what's your takeaway? Chuck Schumer said after the meeting in a press conference that they're making good progress towards avoiding a shutdown. But on the other hand, there's the issue of funding for Ukraine. Yep. Uh, a couple different things. First of all, and Senator Schumer also called uh, uh, the meeting a tent, and I want to get back to that in a second. Interesting uh, choice of words. Um, but to go back to what you said about the speaker, I mean... Sure, there is the issue that he doesn't believe that the president was legitimately elected. Uh, but, you know, it's the president's job to get beyond that. The real problem is, is that, as speaker, his word is no good. So I have zero problem uh, with uh, the president and his team refusing to sit down and uh, talk one-on-one with the speaker. Though, interestingly enough, uh, they did have a private uh, meeting uh, uh, after the regular scheduled meeting. So that's point number one. Point number two is, like I said, interesting choice of words that Senator Schumer used when he called the meeting intense. Oval office meetings are a lot of different things. There were two in particular between the Democratic leadership and uh, the former President Trump that could be charitably described as chaotic. But um, intense is rarely used because... It's always underestimated. Folks sometimes don't underestimate, you know, how intimidating it is doing a meeting in the white uh, in the Oval Office. It's a very small room, but very intimidating. Uh, usually, folks are on their uh, best behavior. So I'm curious to see uh, as more and more reporting comes out what exactly was intense about it. Um, 
what I've seen so far suggests that they made a, you know, a case, you know, how quickly Ukraine needs to get additional money, and maybe that's just it. But again, I found that an interesting uh, choice of words. Well, what Senator Schumer said was that, quote, the meeting on Ukraine was one of the most intense I've encountered in the Oval Office. And apparently they said to Johnson, quote, we said to the Speaker, get it done. And then the Speaker eventually came out, made a statement, didn't take any questions, which again, signify, you know, reeks of fear. And he again reiterated that, uh, you know, something to the effect that Ukraine aid will be addressed you know, uh, at the proper time, but uh, uh, the first thing this country needs to do is secure its own borders. Of course, it leads any reasonable person to say, but you just torpedoed a potential deal a couple weeks ago. But, you know, that's just me uh, speaking in crazy talk. Well, you mean speaking truth which is no longer acceptable in Washington? But I guess, can we in any way feel better about the fact that maybe the Energy, Department of Transportation, Agriculture, VA, Housing and Urban Development Departments will not shut down on Saturday? Well, I think there's a chance that Congress will pass a temporary short-term measure to extend the deadline by, you know, X number of days. But your listeners need to understand the following. If you read up on the meeting, despite Schumer using the word intense, everybody is saying all the right things leaving the White House. The problem is, is that the Speaker has already gone back to Capitol Hill, where, uh, you know, the hard right of his caucus, including the so-called House Freedom Caucus types, are pretty sure it's safe to say are kicking the living bejesus out of them uh, right now for even enter, entering, entertaining the idea of cutting a deal. Many of the hard right have been very vocal over the last couple days in demanding nothing short of a shutdown. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but I wouldn't bet against it. But I think that there's a decent chance, you know, again, they'll pass something at least on a short-term basis. Because, again, remember, given the Rube Goldberg-esque design that the Speaker came up with, is Congress is facing different deadlines. As you indicated, one that includes the Agriculture Committee, uh, Ag- Agriculture Department, and a few other smaller agencies set to expire on Saturday. And then the rest of the government, about 75% of the government, are set to expire, uh, funding set to expire at the end of next week. So uh, still lots and twists and turns still to go in this one. So assuming that the government is not so dysfunctional as to be suicidal and they'll do a continuing resolution, just focusing on Ukraine, which seems to be the real problem, and that's where the intense discussion was focused today in the Oval Office, right? But I assume that's why uh, uh, President Polk speaker aside for a private conversation. But could that conversation have been about a workaround that's being discussed with the Democrats, having laid the groundwork for a discharge petition? And it's quite possible that they'll get enough Republicans to join it. I know it's considered treason on the part of the Republicans to do such a thing, but given how serious the moment is, maybe it will happen. What do you think? Well, a couple of other things. I doubt that the president raised it again in that private conversation. Uh, he, first, he's a Senate guy, but also uh, presidents don't get involved in the nitty-gritty of like that. That's why you have this, uh, uh, Hakeem Congressman Jeffries there, Senator Schumer, to deliver that particular threat. But leaving that aside, as you suggested, um, while it's in the works, I'm not quite so sure You know, it's going to pan out. It goes against what... 
it's supposed to be inbred uh, into the caucus in, in that you don't do stuff like that. But maybe things are getting so desperate uh, that they're going to have to make that move. But uh, they are very rare, as you know, and there's a reason for that, and, and that is that despite all the chaos and confusion, members of the Republican caucus don't like to vote against the caucus. So um, it's possible, but uh, personally, Ian, I, I don't place my credit in it. I, again, I never was a House guy, but you know, I think it's more likely that the Speaker caves at some point, whether he loses his job or not, because of that really is not my concern. Um, but I think at some point the president, uh, I mean, the speaker caves and he agrees. They simply move around him in one form or fashion, whether it's, you know, the discharge petition or more likely just uh, the Senate sending over bill and defying uh, the House to take it or leave it. Well, it doesn't sound like it's in Mike Johnson's personality to cave and perhaps lose his job. Yeah, I'm not so sure I could. He is, yeah. But I'm not so sure that it's uh, when you, I can't agree with you when you say it's not in his, you know, it's not his style. He, the guy, the guy has lost repeatedly over the last couple of months. He's lost one vote after another. It, it, uh, again, I'm a partisan hack, but I've never seen anything like it. You know, it might be the time. It might. It, we're getting closer, I think, to the Senate trying to figure out how to jam uh, the House. There are plenty of re- Senate Republicans on the record expressing deep frustration about where they are and where they're going over the spending bill and the aid to Ukraine. And I'm just wondering at some point if there's not a critical mass and they just decide to jam the House. Well, he's obviously not up for the job, and to be charitable, he's mediocre. But there's the old expression that the great comfort of the mediocre is that they're always at their best. So I'm not entirely convinced he's going to take a courageous vote, which is necessary. But in this atmosphere, though, I'm curious, you know that there was this uh, recent by-election in New York's 3rd District where Swazi won handily over the disgraced Congressman George Santos. But they, the Republicans, still haven't seated this guy. I mean, if the Republicans had won, he'd be seated the next day. Yeah, I'm a little confused about how that played out, but uh, I believe he is seated, uh, being seated tomorrow, uh, being sworn in tomorrow. So in the end, there was no harm, no foul, uh, in, in part because the Speaker couldn't put together a series of votes right before the last recess. So in the end, it didn't turn out to be very problematic. But uh, I must admit, uh, you, you are correct. Under a similar situation with the Republican, guarantee you 100% they would have figured out uh, how to uh, seat him or her a hell of a lot quicker than they're doing here. Yes, but it does indicate that he's not up for the job, right? I mean... They took a two-week vacation in the middle of all this. Yeah, there's a lot of different reasons to cite why he's incompetent in over his skis uh, at this point in time. I Again, the fact that he keeps on losing votes in the Rules Committee, to me, is a leading indicator of, uh, of how poor he's handling it. But, you know, the other thing is, you know, by all accounts, he can't make a decision. He ha- uh, and so that's why, to go back to what I said earlier... That's why this meeting is problematic. If you really looked hard, he said some halfway decent things, as did the others in the room. The problem is, as far as I can tell, he's now going to go back, and Chip Roy, Congressman Roy uh, of Texas and others, you know, are going to be mean to him on Twitter and yell at him in public 
And again, he's just going to go back to waffling and not making a decision because he knows that if he does do the right thing and take a funding bill to the floor, he's out of a job. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, do you have any idea why these people are basically carrying Putin's water? What's happened to Reagan's Republican Party? Because it's mysterious. I mean, the only explanation I've heard is that because he's part of the Christian nationalist movement today, they have this delusion that Putin is a champion of Christian family values and the white race. I mean, they are so wrong, but they were wrong about their hero, Donald Trump. And he's certainly no Christian. Well, and I think, yeah, so that's, I think that's where, I don't want to say better question, but another way to phrase it is, what exactly is driving Trump to do Putin's bidding, because again, all of this is about Republican dysfunction. And you know, meanwhile, the uh, uh, the world is paying a price. I- again, if a bill went to the Senate floor, whether it included immigration-related provisions or not, that provided funding for Ukraine, it would pass both the House and the Senate. Period. End of story. The only reason why that hasn't happened yet is because of Donald Trump. Period. End of story. Sure looks weird. I spent 21 years working in the Senate. I've never heard of Russia, uh, you know, except for an ob- object of, you know, the evil empire kind of thing. There's Russian influence all around the Republican Party, and I don't claim to understand it. Well, it may have something to do with money, because we have a money-driven political system. But it might also have something to do with compromise as the Russians say. Unfortunately, the Mueller report got sidetracked by Bill Barr, and the press don't want to touch this anymore. They think it's an old story. But given what we just learned about the guy who's at the basis of the House impeachment efforts, the evidence that's been presented to the House impeachment crowd, it's coming from Russian intelligence. That ought to get these clowns in the House's attention to what is really going on. Yes, absolutely. And... uh just to echo a point that you just made, the media failed spectacularly to properly contextualize that particular situation. It's just very disappointing. Well, Jim Manley, I thank you. Sure, thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jim Manley, who's a Washington, D.C.-based independent public affairs consultant, Democratic strategist, and a 21-year veteran of the United States Senate, where he served as a senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the past six of those years, and before that served 12 years as an aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on the various trials Trump is facing and whether they will happen before the election and how much time they'll take up as the all but certain Republican presidential candidate campaigns to return to the White House. Outside the patient millions Put them into power Expect a little more back for their taxes Like school books, beds in hospitals And peace in our bloody time All they get is old men grinding axes 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves. Thanks for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And since you have covered all bases in terms of the judiciary here, what's your sense about the various trials Trump is facing and whether they will happen before the election and how much time they will take up because Trump is all the all but certain Republican presidential campaign and, of course, he's in the middle of campaigning, apparently, in the uh, hush money trial about to begin... Uh, he's going to have to spend weeks in the court, isn't he? Oh, well, I, I think so. I mean, that's really the forecast in terms of how long that trial is slated to take. You know, this is an unusual circumstance to have someone who is who has committed so many uh, potential civil and criminal violations that he is um, in the midst of a number of pieces of litigation. And, you know, I've had the concern in my personal capacity that in part Trump is running just to stay afloat financially and partly to try to avoid liability, both criminal and civil liability, by trying to seize the reins of power to, you know, immunize himself. So on the one hand, he's claimed that this is extraordinary to be facing this much potential litigation as his campaign is underway. On the other hand, he's a private citizen. He's not in office. He was voted out of office. He doesn't necessarily get special privileges to avoid being held accountable just because he's running for office. And that accountability, in my opinion, is long overdue. Right. But he's going to run a grievance campaign. And won't he be able to say that this is what they're doing to me? I I can't campaign. I'm having to be in court on this witch hunt, these trumped up charges by these radical left vermin. Well, he'll certainly say that basically there's no, no limit on what he'll say and what, what disinformation or, um, you know, hype that he'll spread. That's, that's part of his calling card. Um, we have seen in other, um, of other cases involving litigation that Trump has not been present for many of the, um, many of the days that those trials were taking place, um, including the defamation suit, um, including the fraud file. And so, um, only certain types of trials is a defendant typically required to be there. He's chosen mostly not to be um, in court. He doesn't always have that choice. Um, but he he will certainly run a grievance campaign. That's what he's been running all along. I don't think that should be a deterrent to holding him accountable. One of the interesting things that has emerged despite the headlines uh, during this primary season is that, in fact, almost um, half of the Republican voters, 40 to 50 percent, 40 to 49 percent, I should say, um, have voted for candidates other than him. Um, and those are, you know, a died in the wool Republicans, people who are party members who registered to vote in those primaries. And so even though the headlines have talked about how much he's, um, you know, won those races by because there are so few candidates running against him. In fact, um, he's really lagging um, because I think I think a number of Republicans recognize that he, you know, is a deeply flawed person and that these um, trials you know, aren't a witch hunt, but they actually do raise serious concerns. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who voted not for him agrees with those concerns or agrees with litigation against him. But the fact is, is that I think he's trying inappropriately to use the fact that he's running for office as an inappropriate 
um, shield against being held accountable now. I do wish the trials had occurred earlier. I wish that they'd moved more quickly and started last year. Um, but unfortunately, the wheels of justice have run slowly. Well, uh, I think Merrick Garland has been a terrible disappointment. For the life of me, I don't understand why he uh, dithered so long. Do you have any idea? I I don't know. I don't have any um, firsthand or secondhand knowledge of that. I do um, I do think it's, dis- it's it's been disappointing how slowly the Justice Department has moved on this issue, on these sets of issues, and others. And um, you know, I think that Merrick Garland had a very strong reputation as a judge. I don't know that um, that reputation is for the kind of alacrity um, that's that's needed um, at the Justice Department with the exigencies we face with the actual existential threat to our democracy that Donald Trump posed in uh, and has, has posed and continue to pose in terms of trying to overturn election results, disrespect the Constitution, and basically um, try to um, try to fulfill a, a, a coup um, through a variety of means. And I think that that, to me, warranted much faster action, whether that was going to be internal or the appointment of a special counsel, that it should have happened quickly um, and not slowly. And so, you know, I think judges um, typically do um, move more slowly. Um, certainly appellate judges have a, have a different pace um, in their in their work with their caseloads than, for example, the attorney general. But I think that um, it's unfortunate that these cases, some of the cases have been um, were slow to start because they were slow to start, you know, at 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 DOJ. On the other hand, it's also the case that these pardon me, it's also the case that these types of cases can take quite a bit of time to put together. I just wish it had happen much more quickly given this given the reality of how serious these issues are for our democracy well of course the new york state cases are the ones that have uh, that have <laughs> happened first and now you've got the latest one being uh, the hush money which should be an open and shut case but after all you know michael cohen went to jail for the for the, the very crime that trump is complicit in he was the cover up was to benefit trump and to benefit his uh, election. Uh, but the other case, well, of course, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, to me, that's, that's another sort of example of just how frustratingly slow the wheels of justice have turned um, because, because Cohen was convicted years ago now. And so even at the state level, when you don't have a former judge at the helm of the Justice Department or the Attorney General's office, these cases have taken a long time to come together. And I don't think that's a, I certainly don't think that's a conspiracy to have them happen this year versus earlier years. It's just, um, it's just the fact that the wheels of justice um, have turned, um, I think too slowly for many people's satisfaction and perhaps even for Trump's, although I, 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 I don't think it would be satisfied either way. So the other state case, of course, is the one down in Atlanta. And we all heard the tape of Trump, asking for 11,780 votes. You'd think that that was, would be a slam dunk. But one of the defendants is an opposition research dirty trickster. He's brought a case against uh, the DA, Fanny Willis, and her accuser testified today. That looks like it's pretty shaky, even though it's obviously a hit job on her. And she equipped herself pretty well, I thought, in the witness chair. But I don't know. Will it matter? I mean, uh, again, it's all so damn sleazy. 
Well, it, it, it's it's really it's such a distraction from the huge issues of the deliberate, concerted effort to uh, interfere with that with the Georgia election for president. Um, it, and it was concocted by Mike Roman, who's a longtime um, uh, sort of attack attack man for the right. Initially, in some ways, or not initially, but for a long time for the Coke machine. I I don't actually think that. It's actually very relevant at all to the underlying merits of the case. Sure. Um, I mean, who, Trump's who, on trial. Who is or is not the, yeah, yeah. Trump's yeah. on trial for what we heard, and then they turned it around yeah. and put her on trial. I mean, it's just such a dirty trick. It's it's amazing they they've gotten this far. It really is, and you know, one of the one of the other contrasts is all this attention on um, on Fannie Willis and her finances. Um, you know, this sort of smear campaign. And yet, mm-hmm. where is the investigation of Clarence Thomas and the money that he's been getting or the gifts that he's been getting that are quite valuable? Um, but, you know, but when the right wing op, you know, opposition machine turns on someone like they have on Fannie Willis, like it's just unrelenting. Right. Well, let's talk about the federal trials. The one that down in Florida, everybody seems to agree, Lisa, is almost a slam dunk. There's just no defense for what Trump did in taking those documents and then lying about them and hiding them and obfuscating and then moving them and then having aides try and cover, you know, all the cover-ups, et cetera. It's like, you know, they, they say the cover-up is worse than the crime. Yeah. Um, it's a slam dunk. There's no two ways about it. But Trump, again, is lucky because of that judge down there. She, I think she's all in. I don't see any, any way in the world that she's going to do the right thing. So, does Jack Smith then have to go to the 11th Circus and have her fired and that'll take time? Yeah, I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I mean, I, and, I, and I would just say, uh, even though you and I agree on so many things, I'm not sure I'd call Trump lucky versus um, Trump someone who d- was determined to put someone um, that he thought would, would put their thumb on the scale of justice for him in that, in that pivotal role uh, in the district court that includes Mar-a-Lago. I suspect that, you know, she was chosen because he thought she would be, um, you know, quite am- amenable to uh, to him for reasons that we don't we don't know. Mm-hmm. She certainly had an indistinguished record, um, you know, in her career to get such a plum appointment for a lifetime position as a district court judge. But as you point out, you know, she um, has been previously um, reversed and and, uh, you know, basically got a talking to you by the 11th Circuit for her past behavior. That hasn't seemingly deterred her at all, um, this judge. Um, and in fact, um, I, it, it's, it is the case. <laughs> I'll say in this case, the crime is worse than the cover up, but the cover up is also a crime because um, it should be a slam dunk because these types of documents that were retained deliberately by Trump um, are some of the most sensitive documents for our national security that are created. And it's just astonishing that he would take them and then and then use some of them in the way that he has. And then some of them, we don't even know how he's used them. And here you have a man who's desperate to raise money uh, through even selling sneakers. And so I think we're not out of the woods at all uh, based on the documents that Trump um, took with him. And there's also been a recent revelation in the past month that the FBI in its search warrant in searching certain parts of Mar-a-Lago where they um, had intelligence that, um, or you know, some sort of source indicating that some of these boxes were retained, um, missed one of the secret rooms at Mar-a-Lago where other boxes may also have, have been. Um, and so I don't think we're at all out of the woods of the danger 
uh, posed by Trump, having had access to these materials and having retained them, he may still have additional materials that we don't even know about that are of the same category of classification, letter clearance or otherwise, you know, um, for just the top eyes of other allied governments. And so it's a terrible situation that we've had um, this sort of um, seizure of important government documents by Trump and that effort to cover it up. So what's happening then to retrieve this latest hidden batch that hasn't even been brought to light by the FBI? Well, I don't know. What what, what we know is that there was a, a secret room that they did not search. And so I would presume that there's no there are no documents there. Who knows, um, you know, if if they were there and if they were moved or who would have moved them. But um, that seems to be a significant, um, a significant issue. And I think the related issue is I'm not sure we've ever had a full um, description of whether other Trump properties were ever searched um, mm. for documents. And so I, I think... Well, he did you know, show one document, didn't need to. He showed yeah. one document at Bedminster to a bunch of sycophants, and it's on tape. So he, at least he did move one document to Bedminster. Yeah, yeah. And, and you... And you'd presume that there was more than one up at Bedminster. And so I don't know. I'm certainly not privy to those sorts of details in terms of mm-hmm. that investigation. Um, it certainly seems from the complaint that was filed that there's substantial evidence of wrongdoing by Trump about the documents that they included um, in in that complaint. And I'm sure they chose not to include other materials that might be even more sensitive because of the fact that they would have to be discussed in some form in the trial. But as you point out, Ian, I don't have any confidence that Judge Eileen Cannon, who Trump appointed to that seat that surrounds, uh, that has the jurisdiction around Mar-a-Lago, is going to do right. And and I don't know what the procedure would be to actually get the 11th Circuit to intervene and remove her from the case. That would be um, an ex- exceptionally rare circumstance um, for them to do so. That's not, that's not to say it's not warranted here, but how long something like that would take if it were pursued is is a big unknown. Um, I would say, though, that the most recent pleading by Jack Smith is very compelling in terms of responding to uh, Trump's, you know, new, you know, array of immunity, et cetera, claims, um, as was the decision by the D.C. Circuit, a, a panel that included both um, Republican presidential appointees and Democratic presidential appointees, that Trump's immunity claims are just, you know, really baseless. Well, I want to further talk further about that, but just I want to finish up in this secret room, a room that's secret. When when did this secret get exposed about there was a secret room that they somehow missed? Yeah, just I just read I just read it in the past in the past month, uh, Ian. Mm-hmm. It, it uh, hmm. yeah, it just came out. Um, so that was um, that was a bit of a surprise. But hmm. I think that goes to that broader set of issues, which is you know were all the other Trump facilities um, searched. And I don't think we've seen a search warrant revelation that reveals that all of his properties were searched, right. let alone all the parts of Mar-a-Lago that could be relevant. So let's then focus on the other federal case, Judge Shutkins in D.C. for the for the insurrection, January 6th insurrection. So what's happening now is that the Supreme Court is taking its time to make a ruling on Trump's absurd claims of immunity. Is that deliberate? I don't, I mean, I don't trust these people at all. I think they are right-wing Republican activists in robes. And it's about time everybody figure that out. 
and my fear is that they're going to delay making decisions on this to have Judge Chutkin twist in the wind and once again delay that particular trial. What's your sense? Well, I am worried um, about this U.S. Supreme Court because of how political it has been, how partisan it has been. Um, I, um, you know, on the one hand, we're waiting every day for a decision um, in response to Trump's claims about immunity um, in the case that Judge Chutkin Chutkin is handling, as you point out, Ian. Um, And on the other hand, uh, the Supreme Court is not bound by any, any statutory rule of how quickly it must act. And so um, the, 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 the partisans on that court could drag their feet, could delay. Um, and in fact, um, the process within the U.S. Supreme Court for issuing a decision is one in which, um, you know, there's a count after an argument um, about uh, or after reviewing the papers that they don't have an argument, but there basically is a, a vote count. And then after that vote count, someone is assigned to write the majority opinion um, and someone is assigned to write the dissenting opinion. And then those opinions are circulated. And um, it's not beyond imagination that certain justices who are extremely partisan, like Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito or the other Trump appointees, uh, could be moving slowly uh, and deliberately slowly. Um, There's no requirement that they meet a particular deadline. And so we're really at their mercy. And unfortunately, this court has proven to be untrustworthy, in my view, when it comes to adhering to uh, the ethical standards that apply to all other federal judges, let alone um, the the real notions of, of the independence of a judge, the fairness of a judge, and not actually trying to advance the Republican Party's political agenda time and time and time again. This um, Supreme Court, this U.S. Supreme Court, the faction that dominates it, is aligned with what the Republican Party wants um, just over and over and over again. So um, it's very worrisome. So what can be done? Uh, what can Jack Smith do to, I guess you can't shame them into getting off the dime here because if Eileen Cannon delays, as she, as she appears to be bound to do, and if, if going to the 11th Circuit's going to drag it out and probably meaning that it will never get heard until after the elections and when if Trump wins, he'll pardon himself. So then your backup plan is, is to get the uh, January 6th trial up and running and... Can he do anything to stop them just delaying this until the clock runs out? I don't think so, but I don't think they'll wait that long. I mean, I, the sort of the tea leaves are that they are going to issue a decision, you know, soon, whatever that means. But mm-hmm. there's no there's no remedy um, for a prosecutor or a party to basically, you know, insist that they move more quickly. There's no legal mechanism sure. to push them. I do think that there's the power of public opinion. Um, that could have some sway, although although obviously since we've seen just this massive amount of corruption unfolding uh, around the court, the the issues of these you know secret trips um, that Alito and Thomas and Scalia you know have taken from when when Scalia was alive, um, and also just this this broader you know lack of um, you know real accountability for whether they have to recuse themselves at all. Clarence Thomas has not recused himself from this case despite Jenny's role in trying to um, get the election count stopped and trying to get legislators in the states to not certify the vote and her, you know, many texts to Mark Meadows, et cetera, and her texts to uh, John Eastman, the lawyer who was advising Trump on this Mm -hmm. effort to basically manufacture a coup. You know, so I don't know what standards they actually adhere to because they don't appear to be adhering to 
um, any of the longstanding ethical standards that apply to other judges in terms of the appearance of impropriety or bias or actual bias. So, but I do believe that, you know, um, uh, people can speak out, they can write letters to the editor, they can, um, you know, make their voices heard, but this court um, is arrogant. Uh, it's displayed its arrogance in its ruling, for example, overturning nearly 50 years of precedent in Roe versus Wade um, and more. And so I don't have a lot of confidence that this U.S. Supreme Court is going to um, act uh, quickly uh, with the speed needed to actually ensure that this case can can uh, proceed, um, you know, uh, without having there be some sort of interference, in essence, by delay. Well, Lisa Graves, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me on, Ian. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, who's the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsels for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.